0: Well, let's pray together. Father God, we come to you so grateful that we can, uh, saying what we just sung, that our hearts long for you. We were made to long for you. We were made to seek you as we are today. We know that, Lord. We were made to worship you as we have this morning. We were made for the fellowship of your family, of your people, which is what we've enjoyed today. Lord, we know that you drew us here by your spirit, that none of us is here by coincidence or accident, but all of us by your providence have been drawn into this fellowship this day to offer this worship and to study this text and to give to you the commitment of our hearts and lives today. So now, Lord, we ask you to speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit from your word into our hearts. Help us as our hearts long for you to experience you in a transforming way. Even this day and these days, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So I saw something in the news the other day that sparked my interest. It was a list of inventions that are no longer around, of innovations, of cultural uh, practices, of uh, ways of doing things that just aren't around anymore. And as I look around, a lot of you are going to have no idea what these next slides are about. That's called blockbuster. People used to go there and rent movies. And take them home and stick them in a machine and push a button and watch them. Isn't that a crazy idea? I mean, what a silly idea. Who would have thought of that, right? Remember those? Anybody old enough, yeah, to remember that? Anybody remember AOL? You've got mail. Uh, Yeah. Well, all right. We could move on. What about a Sony Walkman? Oh, yeah. We were cutting edge, right? I mean, that was high-tech stuff. And then, of course, we had these. You're wondering, are those ships anchors? What are those? Those are VHS tapes. Those were cutting edge back in the day. That's a slap bracelet. Thought about that lately or in decades maybe? What about an Atari on which you could play Space Invaders? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's good stuff, right? And 50 years ago, uh, who would have thought of any of that? Well, when I read the article and thought about all these innovations that aren't innovations anymore, I thought about all the ways our culture has changed over that same period of time. Won't go into details, I have a lot of kids here today, but you know what I'm talking about. I mean from fifty years ago and legalizing abortion to same sex marriage and LGBTQ issues and all the things we're thinking about with euthanasia these days and just where the culture's changed in the last fifty years. Would you agree that the greatest need in America today is for awakening, for spiritual revival? Maybe you've been following what's been going on the last week and a half in Asbury University in the central part of Kentucky. A week ago, Thursday, at the conclusion of their regular chapel service at this small evangelical school, 1,600 students, a call was issued for repentance. Students came down to the front of the chapel, began to repent of sin. And a revival service started that is still going on. Ten days later, still going on. 24 7 for ten days. People have been coming from all over the country. It's been broadcast all over the world. Read the other day about a group in Pakistan that were praying for the revival services in Kentucky. The Holy Spirit on the march. It was announced by the university this morning. They are going to have to get back to class at some point, right? They're going to have to go back to being a university at some point. And so by Thursday of this next week, they intend to relocate the 24-7 worship service to someplace off campus so that it won't be all the school does. But that's what's been going on the last 10 days in Asbury University. How could we be part of a greater movement of God's spirit in our own hearts. We've been asking all this new year how to live a life this year that God can bless. What does that mean? What does that look like? Talked about living missionally, about using time effectively, using our influence effectively. So let's ask today, how can you and I experience more of God than we have now? How could God do here what he's doing in Kentucky? How could God bring about in our hearts the awakening our nation needs so desperately? What would that look like? So as I was thinking about that this week and praying for the folk at Asbury and all of that, I was drawn to a text that's familiar to us. We just sang about it. But a text, as far as I can tell, I've never preached a sermon on before in all these years. But as I looked at it this week, thought about it, unpacked it, it really came to grip me and to kind of express what's in my heart and maybe in your heart as well. So Psalm 42 begins this way. As a deer pants for flowing streams. That's the English standard version. So pants my soul for you, O God. Well, what's going on here? What's behind this? Well, unpack it for just a moment. Starts as a deer pants for flowing streams. That's the deer we're talking about. They're called Persian fallow deer. They used to be all over the Middle East. They've been hunted almost into extinction. Now they exist only in Israel and Iran, of all places. When you go to Israel, you see them. We see them on the crags. We see they're good mountain climbers. We see them out in the Judean wilderness as well as up into the Galilee as well. That's the kind of deer we're talking about. The area where the psalmist is speaking is the Judean wilderness that looks like that. It is a desert. It gets to 120 degrees in the summer. I was up on Masada one summer in June, and they were passing out salt pills because it was getting so hot up there. In the summer, these deer, these Persian fallow deer, drink four to five quarts of water a day to survive. They're terrified of still water because it can be very dangerous, and they know that. What they're looking for is streams of water, which, as you can imagine, are hard to find in the desert, but they're there. There's one. That's a spring-fed stream in the Judean wilderness. They are there. In the wilderness, and the deer know where they are, and so they long for them. They pant for them. The Hebrew says they search passionately for them. That's a description of what it's like to be a deer in the wilderness 3,000 years ago and today as well. In the exact same way the psalmist says, so pants, it's the same Hebrew word, so longs, so passionately yearns. My soul, my nephesh, the essence of me for you, O God. Well, that prayer, that statement became such a powerful image in ancient Israel that it eventually got put on coins and on seals. There's a seal with a deer on it that goes back to the 8th or ninth century before Christ, discovered by archaeologists. This idea of a deer panting after God became an image, a metaphor for what our souls are made to long for today. Well, the psalmist repeats the point. He says it again, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And he asks, When can I come and appear before God? In Hebrew literature, emphasis was through repetition. We would say holy, holy, or holiest. They say holy, holy, holy to get to the same point. Repetition was how they emphasized. So to say it again the second time is to emphasize the point. Well, now, why is this in the Bible? This isn't just a psalmist speaking for himself. This isn't a one-off that he happened to write down in a diary someplace. Every word in the Bible is there for your sake. Not just for their sake, but for your sake. For the sake of those that would read Scripture across all, in this case, 3,000 years after that prayer was written. It was written because it describes us. When he says, when shall I come and appear before God? The Hebrew says, when shall I come and see the face of God? face of God reminds us of that famous text so often applied to revival if my people called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land." to seek your face is to seek intimacy with you if you're at a certain distance I can't see your face anymore right I can see all of your faces here, but if we were a big enough room, you get far enough away. I couldn't see your face. So if I wanted to seek your face, I'd have to get close to you to see your face. Seek my face. The psalmist says, when can I seek the face of God? Well, that's in Scripture because that's our prayer, whether we know it or not whether we can put words to it or not. St. Augustine said of God, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You may have heard the phrase over the years attributed to Pascal that there's a God-shaped emptiness in each of us, like a missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Well, that's not precisely what Pascal said. Here's what he said. There was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Infinite abyss filled only with an infinite and immutable object. Mentioned two weeks ago C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, Gave you the notice, then you're going to have to read it sometime. If you don't read it in this life, you'll have to read it in heaven. Big stack of them in every language. They're right inside the pearly gates. As soon as you get in, you're going to have to be, if you ever read it, you're going to have to sit down and read it. So you may as well get it over with. Next to the Bible, it's meant more to me than any other single book. I'm just so grateful for his insights. Well, at one point in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes the point better than I can. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, that's English for gasoline, made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy on our own way, in our own way, without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. Your heart pants for God. You were made that way. You were created that way for intimacy with your creator. Psalm speaks for us all. So then on practical terms, what do we do about this? How do we appear before God? How do we seek God's face? Let me offer three very simple practical life principles early in this new year. The first is to admit that you need more of God than you have. To admit that the psalmist is right, that Lewis is right, that your engine is made to run on God and won't run properly on anything else. Now I have to say that because our secular culture doesn't agree with anything you've heard today. Our secular culture is convinced that materialism is the measure of all things that the more stuff you have, the more successful you are, right? We measure success by popularity and performance and by possessions and by perfectionism and by all the stuff we can do and we can own and all the ways we can impress other people. That's how our culture measures us. It's therefore how we typically measure ourselves, and we don't need God for all of that. We work hard. We get up early. We stay up late. We try hard. We work hard. We can do that. We don't need more of God than we have, we think, I mean, the culture would, on some level, kind of commend you for the hobby of going to chapel today, right? I've often told you, in our culture, God's a hobby. God's like playing golf. Fine, if you want to play, but don't tell me I have to. It's what you do in your free time. It's what you do when you have some time left over. But you don't live on it, unless you're a professional, I guess. It's not what you do for a living. It's just what you do with your spare time. If you buy that lie, you will go the rest of your life spiritually hungry and impoverished if you won't agree with me that you need more of God than you already have today you may have all the God you want you don't have all the God you need now the reason I say this is because this applies to every decision in life we make right you're not going to eat a meal unless you're hungry well I guess you might just because it really tastes good but typically we eat stuff when we get hungry for stuff we typically open presents because we want what's inside pretty much everything we do is motivated by a belief we need what we're therefore going to do. If you don't really believe you need more of God than you have, you won't do anything about today's message. You'll have come to chapel, seen some friends, hopefully had a good time, go on about your day, finished your round of golf, and go on about your week. Unless you'll agree and admit that you need more of God than you have. So remember what he did for you. Remember the love he showed you. I saw this the other day. This by Isaac of Stella back a thousand years ago. Jesus bore our griefs in his passion and carried our sorrows in his compassion for us. I love this phrase, loving those whom he carried and carrying those whom he loved. That's you. Died for you. Would do it all again just for you. That's how much Jesus wants a relationship with you. And now he's inviting you to want a relationship with him. To want more of God than you have. Well, if you do, what do you do about that? Well, second, you know this. I'll just say it. Make time to be alone with him every single day. As the text says, be still and know that I am God. If we don't do that, the first point really doesn't matter. If I could get you to vote on number one, we all agree that we need more of God than we have, and you can't leave chapel to you raise your hand, we'll all raise our hands, right? But if you don't do something about that, it won't matter that you said that. And I want to make you a promise right now. The enemy wants desperately, if you vote for one, not to vote for two. He doesn't care. If in chapel on Sunday morning, we all agree we're deers panting for water, we're hearts longing for God, we're made for a more intimate relationship with God than we have, he doesn't really care if we say that, as long as we don't do anything about it. And the enemy and the world will do everything they can to keep you from doing something about it. If you don't have right now an appointment to meet with God tomorrow, I want to challenge you to make that today. Just like you make any other appointment. If you're going to meet somebody that matters to you, somebody important to you, do you just kind of hope you run into them? Do you just kind of hope life works out in such a way that when you get some spare time, you might run into that? Or do you make an appointment? Do you set a schedule? Do you put it on your calendar? Do you protect it? When you make an appointment with somebody, do you decide, well, we'll figure out later where we're going to meet and just kind of hope it works out? Or do you have a place and a time? I want to urge you. To make a place and a time to be still and know that he's God. And don't let anything steal it from you. More than your body needs food, your soul needs God. If this isn't a regular routine for you, I promise you it won't take long before it is. If you will make this commitment to the Lord, and if you're doing that, let me urge you to do it for this reason, and that goes to number three. Admit we need more of God than we have. Make a regular time to meet with him, but seek to know him and make him known you're not done until you've met god now here I got to confess something almost done here today as a professional christian right paid christian do this for a living type guy i am so tempted to confuse knowing about god with knowing god So tempted to finish a quiet time at the start of the day and get some stuff out of it I can turn into an article or a sermon or a tweet or whatever. Check the box. Walk the dog, took out the trash, met with God. So tempted to do that. Even more tempted than you might be because this is what I do for a living. So I must be growing closer to God. Osmosis, right? Jerry and I were talking, walking in as the associate golf pro over at the Cliffs, and he and I were talking about the fact that it's hard for him to make time to play golf because he plays golf for a living. It's what he does for a living. Why would he want to play golf in his spare time? It's what he does for a living, right? I wrote an article last week to our pastors. We have a pastoral ministry as part of what we do. It'll come out this next Tuesday, warning us as pastors about the exact same thing. Because other people think we must be close to God because we act like it in public. We must therefore be. Because we look religious, we must be right with God, we think. When in fact, the real temptation is to seek some time for ourselves, when if the rest of our time is serving God, well, then we're not going to serve God with that time for ourselves, and that's how affairs start. That's how clergy failure starts. Time for ourselves. Again, C.S. Lewis says we're like taxpayers that pay our taxes but hope we have money left over to do with what we want. So understand, by virtue of the fact that you showed up at chapel today, thank you for that. So glad you came. Be very aware of the enemy's strategy to cause you because you maybe, maybe, hopefully learned something about God today to think you therefore know God. Knowing God and knowing about God are not the same thing. Practical terms. When you're reading the Bible, ask God to speak to you from his word. You're not done till you've heard something. Keep a journal. Write down your thoughts in the belief God is speaking to you. When you pray, imagine yourself actually talking to God. To God. Seek to know him. And if you will, you will make him known. And that will be revival. That will be awakening. What's happening in Asbury? I've read the quotes. I've followed the story. I've been writing about it all week. Students coming out, faculty coming out, visitors coming out saying, they are meeting God. They're experiencing God. Blackaby's book, all those years ago, experiencing God. You can experience God. Settle for nothing less than that. So, You were made to pant after God. You were. And when you do, this is what will happen. It was said of, Sanhedrin said of the disciples, they recognized they had been with Jesus. They recognized that. Charles Spurgeon said, a Christian should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. You've read Lives of Christ, beautifully and eloquently written, but the best life of Christ is his living biography written out in the words and actions of his people living biographies. So let's decide today to admit that we're like that deer panting for water. We need more of God than we have. Let's make or reinforce that time by which to meet with him and not be done until we know him and we can make him known. Close with this. Hadn't thought about it till just a moment ago. story some years ago was told of an elderly man who was close to the end of his life, and was struggling with his relationship with God. Just didn't feel close to him, didn't feel that he was really communicating, connecting with him when he prayed, just didn't really feel an intimacy with God anymore. Knew a lot about God. He'd been serving God. He'd been going to church. He'd been teaching. He'd been doing things all his adult life, really. But he just really didn't feel himself to be in that kind of intimacy with God he wished for. Talked to his pastor, his longtime friend. Pastor suggested a simple thing. His friend, who was by that point pretty well bedridden, put a chair beside his bed and imagine God in the chair and talk to God as though he were in the chair. And his friend reported back, as they talked about this, that that was a great help to him across the days and weeks to come, to imagine God in the chair, speak to him just in the chair, knowing God like that. Then came the call one afternoon the pastor's elderly friend's daughter, that her father had just passed into heaven. And she told the pastor, there's something I don't understand. I checked on him, and he seemed okay. I came back a few moments later, and he was gone. But here's what I don't understand. His hand was in the chair. And the pastor said, I think I understand Let's pray. Imagine the God of the universe in the chair next to you. In your heart. Put your hand in that chair. Tell God you want to know him more than you've ever known him before. Would you tell him that right now? Would you make or reinforce a commitment to meet him in that chair every day? And now, would you pray, Lord, help me know you. Bring revival in my heart. Help me to know you right now. Pray that. Father God, I thank you for all the ways you answer all these prayers in Kentucky and around the world for those who are seeking your face today. May we be among them. I ask in the name of the one who came to seek us. To seek and save that which was lost, even Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.